Hello and welcome to Amplify. This week we have a conversation which was recorded earlier this month at the International Conference on Live Coding at the University of Limerick. That's music from Neil O'Connor's Ordnance Survey and Neil is one of the contributors to the conversation which you're about to hear. But before we hear this, a quick word on our first live podcast recording, which takes place during the New Music Dublin Festival at the National Concert Hall on March the 1st. If you want to attend this, you need to book for the event at nch.ie or newmusicdublin.ie. For the event, we'll be chatting to composer Kevin O'Connell, who has a portrait concert on the Saturday of the festival. And we have a panel discussion on diversity in new music, which we're calling Who's Music? So if you want to find out more, come along on March the 1st at 4pm. And so on to the conversation recorded during the International Conference on Live Coding. The chat took place in the foyer of the University Concert Hall at the University of Limerick and I must say I knew very little beforehand about this area which centres around using computer code generated as part of a live performance. You'll hear from a number of people who were involved in the conference including writer-artist Emma Cocker, musician and researcher and live coding pioneer Alex McLean, curator and researcher Nora Omuraku, composer and multimedia artist Giuseppe Torre and, as I mentioned earlier, composer and producer Neil O'Connor. Here it is. My name is Giuseppe Torre. I'm a lecturer here in UL, teaching digital arts and music. This year I'm the chair of ICLC 2020, the International Conference of Light Coding. I'm Emma Cocker. I'm an associate professor in fine arts at Nottingham Trent University and a writer-artist. Hi, I'm Neil O'Connor. I'm a lecturer here in UL. Um, I'm a composer and researcher at Digital Media Arts Research Centre. And I'm the Chair of Music here at ICLC. I'm Alex McLean. I um, live in Sheffield, UK, but I work in the Deutsches Museum in Munich on a project about weaving as a technical mode of existence. And I'm also a live coder and uh, co-founded this uh, international conference on live coding. I'm Nora Omeriku. I'm a lecturer here at the University of Limerick in Interaction Design. Live coding is about coding, so using programming languages and Having this little command, written command, text command, most of the time text command, to develop a performance in front of an audience. So rather than controlling things like behind a screen, it's all about showing your screen and showing the audience how you make music in front of them by using specialized programming languages, sometimes self-developed programming languages. So basically the audience witness the birth of a live performance while the performance is actually typing and working away at his own keyboard. One of the things that 
I find really fascinating is the way that live coding is working both with a score, it's, it's writing a score effectively, but it's also improvisation at the same time. So I think one of the things that live coding does in a very critical and interesting way is it blurs or collapses a lot of the categories that we might usually think of music or performance by. Um, so scored and improvised at the same time, process and product at the same time. So I think, I think that seems to be quite an important feature. Alex, could you tell me about, about your work and, and, and where live coding fits into your music and your performance? It's the only way that I've made music over the last sort of uh, 18 years, I suppose. It is just how I make music. I make my own language, which is called Tidal Cycles, which is free open source software. So there's thousands of other people using it as well. Uh, I made this system as something which is really geared towards improvising with pattern. So I suppose this is about connecting code with pattern. And the more you look at code, the, re the more you realise that it really is all about pattern. The idea of an algorithm, I think, comes down to uh, interference patterns and shifts and of registers and all these things that somehow come up with a result. And I find live coding is really good at making that connection between action and reaction really interesting. So if I change a bit of code, I have an idea about what kind of transformation I'm doing but I still don't know what's going to happen. It's like an exploration. It's that kind of notion of coding not to um, solve a problem or answer a question but really you're coding to ask a question and then the code sort of performs itself in order to answer it in, in terms of making some music. Turning to you, Neil, do you use live coding in your work? No, I'm, I'm not essentially a, a live coder at all, but I think the way I make music shares lots of similarities with live coding. I don't use computers to play live, I use machines, so modular synths and synthesizers, but so I'm reacting to those machines in real time. And I'm very much an improviser as well, so reacting in real time to situations is you know, what I do quite a lot with my electronic music. There's a lot of parallels, I think, between the way live coders perform and then electronic music performers perform, I suppose. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think that there's been a real resurgence in modular synthesis, which is about opening up synthesizers and making them reconfigurable and visible. That resurgence came at the same time that live coding came around, so I think it comes from the same place, just wanting to work away from this idea of a seamless interface and work with something where actually making fundamental changes um, and engaging with the machine itself in a direct way. What is the difference between using a hardware or software interface and, let's say, using live coding to create a piece? With a computer you can do anything you want, from writing a text, from making music, making movie. So literally it creates that kind of barrier between you as a musician acting on a computer in front of an audience, which clearly you don't know what, what is happening behind the curtain, right? But yet you see things happening, but you don't know what. You see that also in other kind of performances, such as, I don't know, uh, surround sound, or, or where you see the engineer moving a fader on, on the desk or whatever, but you're not really sure what he's doing or what, what he's actually acting upon. 
So there's no clear understanding of what's, what's happening. That's because technology substantially is a black box, uh, both for people that use it and both for people that witnesses its effect. Showing the code is just a way of being really direct, maybe open, not only how you act upon sound, but how you actually create the sound. So there is transparency, but there is also a, a kind of a way of looking technology in the eyes. Just quickly on that point as well, and this is my observation, I suppose, from live coding as a non-live coder, that in a performative situation, it's almost about getting it wrong and then finding your way to getting it right again. The mistakes are good, are seen as kind of good thing, and maybe the audience see you getting into that mistake and then you're escaping from that, and that's part of the, the, the joy that I see from the live coding, and it's something that I experience from making music in a live scenario too. That's exactly what I meant when you say, like, you look technology in, in the eyes, then you see a terror. <laughs> you are faced with a monster. You are faced with it, but you embrace it. You engage in a dialogue with it. And that's why actually the live coding community is open about mistakes. If the computer crashes, everybody's cheerful and happy. There's no backup plan like uh, you face, you're a gladiator into the Colosseum facing the beast and uh, you go at it. <laughs> A lot of the time that we kind of experience technology, we think about interfaces, we think about kind of like our smartphones. And like, I think that's the majority of the way that like maybe an audience might encounter kind of like digital technology. So in lots of ways, like live coding kind of like disrupts that and kind of makes that kind of like non-existent. So we think about kind of interfaces as being something, things that are kind of like rigid and fixed and something that we interact with in a very kind of specific kind of way. So. Live coding, in, in a sense, actually kind of removes that from like the perception of like what an interface can actually be. When you were mentioning the risk and the failure, there's something that is really tangible in an audience where I think one of the things that seems to be really appreciated is the way in which a live coder might court risk or error within a performance, and the audience feels as if they're kind of hanging on the edge of that in a way. Yeah, I think that's a, an interesting alternative. You can see the live coder as a gladiator or you can, on the other hand, think of the audience as being sort of caring, you know, wanting this person to succeed or, or work through their problems. I'd like this quote from Paul Klee or Clay that um, composition is about things standing despite all chance to fall. Exposing yourself to error is also sharing something and also being cared for, I think. I'm interested in, in just exploring if you if you think live coding has has an effect on on the whole temporality in in music, and what I mean by that is is you know is the work that you produce, say Alex, is this to be experienced only in real time, or is there a sense that these works can exist after in you know after the live performance in a recording, much in the way 
let's say, Western classically notated works are? So the first sort of five or seven years of my musical career, I didn't record anything because I was very keen on this live moment and that means that I've just had this dark period. Now I'm, I do like to record things and listen back. I think um, it sounds different the next day, but it sounds doesn't mean that it's worse. I both enjoy playing for the moment, but then also sort of reflecting on it. And I'm developing an interface where it actually records every single key press so that you could replay the key presses in order to reconstruct the sound. Yeah, it's not something I've fully got my head around, this sort of uh, desire for liveness and being in the moment and also wanting to archive what you're doing. It's not just a question just for live coding, it's a question for quite an awful lot of like art forms as well, such as like performance, new media art. Like, they all suffer from the obsolescence of technology, like you know, software going out of date, but yeah. also just like a lot a large part of the experience of that art form is very much about being in the context, like in a room with a performer, with an audience. And so a large part of that kind of experience is tied up in that kind of overall experience or a concert or performance or whatever it is as well. Documentation is definitely a key thing in, in terms of like when you think about kind of like the recording of performance or the archive of a performance. And just on that documentation point, Derek Bailey, when he, the English guitarist, the improviser, absolutely hated his music on record. And he didn't see the point and he didn't own any records. I think capturing that thing in the moment is, is the magic of it. And then when it's done, it's done. And it's a document captured from that it's purely archival. One of the things that live coding does is ask us to question what do we understand by real time and I think one of the things it has the capacity to do is to show that our experience of time isn't coherent and that there are many temporal registers that are, that are happening simultaneously. There's live coders who talk about counting beat time, there's the kind of felt time, so there's all of these different registers and I think in the live coding performance as a performer and also as, a, as an audience I get the sense of really experiencing that wrestling with those different registers holding all those different registers in some kind of relationship and I wonder whether in the recording of it somehow those different registers of time get compressed into a single experience that you don't get such a sense of the wrestle or the struggle or the, the polytemporality that I think is really there in, in the performance itself. You can see the tension between the kind of a more phenomenological approach to understanding art as a practice, as a lived experience of the moment, which is fundamentally non-repeatable because it belongs to a situation, to a, a certain moment in time. And then the recording, which instead tends, just because of the technique itself, to objectify the work of art. And objects generally doesn't fit well in phenomenological discourse, where it's more and more about the, the, the dichotomy between subject and object is dissolved. The technology we have today can offer actually a better, even probably the best representational artifact of a given performance. We can record it, you can stream it. Alex is recording each single characters as soon as he input them, and also in time. So they, I mean, it, it can be reproduced, but the moment itself will never be. I think this is not just a problem that we have nowadays, of course, like, I mean, it relates also to classical studies. I mean, the scores was just a way of notating to be reproduced in a live, in yet another live settings. Like, it's just the advent of phonographs and then listening back technology that created a kind of additional layer of complexity in this topic. 
without archiving, then the only way that you continue things is by remembering them and uh, talking to each other. So, yeah, I, I really like things like bowl syllables and canteric in um, Scotland, this, this way of describing sound with words through onomatopoeia. And I think this relates to live coding because, in a way, the code is a kind of speech. We type it, but, um, and it's text, but it's also just there in the moment. It's almost like a way of sharing tunes that you get in the folk club, sharing these sort of little um, heuristic sort of techniques that produce certain kinds of rhythms. And, and you don't necessarily have to write them down in, in, in an archive. You can just let things change from one person to the next. And I, I guess that's the idea of tradition as something that isn't something you archive and fix and reenact, but something which, uh, a tradition that's passed down from one person to the next. Are there not more challenges to try and do that when uh, technology is involved? Like, mm. because, you know, the simple idea of obsolescence um, and, and, so for, and so forth over time. I think if we do get a sudden burst of sudden radiation and all our computers are wiped out, then we'll lose any archive of the computer languages or the music we've made with it. We should yeah, record it to, to a stone tablet or something, I don't know. <laughs> Moving on the conversation to artificial intelligence, and I, I'm sort of curious to know where live coding sits within the AI orbit, so to speak. If AI intelligent machines become as powerful as people expect them to become, will that make this idea of live coding redundant in the future? No, I think maybe the opposite. I think once AI is replaced or programming, then the only programming that would be left is people just doing it for themselves. And that's what live coding is, I think. It's just making music for ourselves and for our friends rather than writing software for other people to use. People are still knitting and weaving, even though there's machine looms, um, and they're doing it because it's a way of expressing themselves and sharing culture. In the future, AI might have taken over and we'll have universal basic income and we can just live code algorithms. <laughs> I think, like as, as Alex suggests, I think there'll be a backlash against this very tightly constrained form of technology um, in the future, and a kind of a yearning back to this almost folkloric approach to making music or, or doing code. It may w make the earth move and work better, but I think as, a, as an approach, an artistic approach, it's nonsense. <laughs> People in the kind of digital music, digital art community are guilty as well as many other people to inflate the discussion around the intelligence of machines. So any serious mathematician wouldn't talk about AI, like uh, we'll call it statistical modeling. So that's the terminology for it. So there's no intelligence, there's no, there's way, there's certain something there that you can discuss. It's uh, fantastic. It could uh, spark the imagination of people. But at the times, like, I mean, art is not, again, it's not an object, no, that doesn't have a goal and you have it there, like to contemplate. It's a practice and practice is a human activity, which is, it's experience over a long period of time. It dies with the person itself. It's a relationship of person with material. 
you can't substitute like an algorithm to do that kind of stuff. Like it's, there's no there's no fine, there's no scope in art. No, a machine needs to have a goal that you achieve. One of the things I've been again struck by in the last days is this discussion between um, the relationship between e efficiency and creativity. And I guess irrespective of whether it's live coding or another creative practice, it's not so often that creative practice emerges from efficiency. I think actually many artists in different fields actually are messing things up a bit and trying to kind of roughen or disrupt or unsettle a certain kind of practice and often it's from those moments of roughening or error or failure or glitch or however you want to phrase it that actually new things arise and I, and I wonder how much an AI model is based on efficiency models really because it's I guess to a certain extent economically driven incentive and we all know that that's not necessarily where all creative practice springs from. Going back to your keynote, Emma, you asked this question about how can the development of intelligent machines better facilitate live coding without eradicating the critical in intervals and in-between spaces necessary for improvisatory invention and intervention. So I suppose it's it's to do with that kind of, you know, that roughness or that fragility that, you know, that, that, that you get from live performance. I mean, I guess in this sense, it was to do with thinking of the computer or the technology more as a genuine collaborator. And by that, I don't mean a kind of augmentative collaboration where you're just trying to improve what you can already do with extra capacities, but really the kind of collaboration which you're trying to generate something new or unexpected by tripping yourself up or by taking a path that might not be already anticipated. And I think in that sense, there could be sort of a fruitful collaboration because human performers also have habits. And just because they're performing live doesn't mean to say that it's going to be, it has vitality or it's actually unpredictable or unforeseeable. Actually, many improvisers repeat the same material many, many times. And I think there could be scope for computer technologies to trip up that tendency in a way and actually invite them to explore alternatives in the same way that the kinds of collaborations that I'm interested in also do that. When you listen to classical concert, any error there like it would be considered blasphemy, right? You're you're destroying repertoire like in jazz, at least in traditional jazz, any error would have been seen as fantastic. I can take this as a lead to go like oh no problem, whatever it goes. Like now computer music, like it's because it's done on a computer, you are basically creating for yourself an enclosed box with a limited set of possibilities. The intervention of AI or better name statistical modeling, because it works with an input, a black box in the in the middle, and an output at the end offers more possibilities for the performer to open that box and then enable that communication. No? Like, a, give me an error, come on, <laughs> force, the, force the computer to, to break away from myself, take me away from myself, no? like all my encoded self. Final question, where is this genre going? Where is it heading towards? So I think the future is probably live coding merging in with other practices, and that's certainly happening people just using it as one uh, approach amongst many um, hybrid things coming out. Beyond that, hopefully it will, will connect with other disciplines, like I work a lot in textiles. Um, Kate Seiko has been for many years applying live coding to choreography. And I really hope that we manage to build on this and actually branch out so the ideas from live coding can find um, homes elsewhere.
I suppose I can see a future of it that, on the one hand, is not necessarily the future I'm interested in, which would be that as a practice it becomes so mainstream that its critical questions fall away and it becomes just another commodity in a way. And I think the thing that has drawn me to live coding is that it seems as if it is a context where some of the questions that you're raising around liveness, around temporality, around human, non-human collaboration can really meaningfully not only be explored but are really present in the practice's question marks. And I would really like it if that could remain. One of the things that was interesting is that a lot of the early live coders were really writing the technology, writing the languages that they needed in order to perform. So in that sense, the kind of means in the inquiry were emerging simultaneously. And I think what's interesting now is that given that a lot of that technology exists to a certain extent, it's much more easier to become a consumer of those technologies which seems really different to the first wave of live coding practice. So I don't think it's um, a kind of given that things become more commodified as they become more mainstream, but I think there's something to do with how do you retain a sense of that kind of critical urgency was that, that was there at the inception of live coding practice and the real sense of wrestling with the technologies in order to find solutions for things that can't yet be done. If at the beginning like there was this kind of convergence of technical and artistic questions and troubles and problems and uh, reasoning, now that the kind of technological challenges have been surpassed, now we risk, if we don't keep questioning technology and the relationship with the arts, we keep falling again back into a kind of a fantastic world made only of musicology, where music is an entity on its own, where means and, and instruments don't take part into the discussion. Actually, the instrument becomes just a means to an end, but in an artistic practice, it is not. It's way more than a means to an end. It's actually part of the art practice itself. Maybe the same will happen in, in the performance sense, that we will have more live coding with more traditional live acts as we've seen here in ICLC we have coders working with live musicians and I, I think that approach might become more common in the next number of years as the art form develops. Neil O'Connor, ending that conversation recorded at the International Conference on Live Coding at the University of Limerick. My thanks to Giuseppe Torre and Jürgen Simpson at the Digital Media and Arts Research Centre at the University of Limerick for arranging this discussion. That's all for this episode. We'll be back next week with a conversation with some members of the Sounding the Feminists Collective. Until then, bye for now.